Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello there everyone and welcome to another episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. Once again I'm your host Adam Burns and joining me again from the telephone is Courtney Pine. Courtney, how are you doing today? Very good Adam and good evening ladies and gentlemen. So how you been keeping? You've been uh, busy last week or so since our last recording? Yeah, yeah, carrying on doing my bits and bobs over at the farm. Keep myself sane somehow. And uh, we managing as a motorbike goes across, nice, very nice. Uh, have you managed to avoid uh, any stragglers running around trying to break social distancing or lockdown rules? No, people have been behaving themselves, so I can't complain. That's good. I mean, we've been having a lot of good weather of late. Obviously, the last couple of days have been uh, less than summery, which is only a good thing when we're trying to uh, stick to these lockdown rules. So... Uh, Hopefully that continues, and uh, might have to hope and wait and see what happens next. I mean, we're not going to talk too much about lockdown and stuff. I think we'll leave that to the experts, because we're in no way in a position to offer advice at this point, just like everyone else. But uh, yeah, so we'll move on to uh, what we're going to be talking about in our podcast. So first things first, for those of you tuning in and expecting the second part of our favourite cars, featuring uh, some cars that I have chosen and wanted to talk about in a bit more of a technical analysis of them and obviously what made them so great that will come in next week's episode which we're probably going to pull out i'd say next yeah this time next week probably is a good time so until then you've still got that list of cars that courtney very kindly chose them and i think we had a great discussion on those cars and i really enjoyed that list that you gave courtney i thought that was definitely a very very good list to choose from and yeah well no that's that's the nature of it really that's me uh, being so kind but then in fairness I think a lot of people probably would have picked a few of those cars in particular on their all-time list if they had to choose a few um for those of you that haven't seen that episode or are interested it's on the YouTube channel or if you listen to us on a major podcasting platform like Spotify or Apple tune Apple iTunes or uh, Google Podcasts, and you can check that out on there and uh, make sure to leave a like, share, and subscribe as well, because it really helps the channel out. Now, moving along to this week's episode, obviously, in the current world of Formula 1, it's very, very difficult to find any significant news uh, day by day, as the current COVID-19 situation 
um, has taken precedent in terms of enforcing a lockdown in numerous countries across the world. And because of this, we've kind of been indoors for well over a month now. I'm not really sure, Courtney, if anyone's kept count on how many days exactly we've been in lockdown. It feels like an eternity. I don't know if you have any idea of the number. Well, maybe you can go back to one of the episodes we recorded because... Well, it happened, didn't it? It happened just after we recorded an episode. I think so, yeah. So I'm going to guess that it was, what, four weeks ago, uh, Monday? Because we're recording this on Wednesday. Um, the tw- oh, What's the date today? Wednesday the 29th of April. So Monday? Yeah, it sounds about right. So a month, practically. Yeah. Oh, and it feels... I, I, I think, wait, 30, it would have been 30 days. Oh, yeah, right. it happened on the Monday. It just feels so, it'll be so four much. Weeks and two days. Yeah, it just feels so much longer than that, doesn't it? God, yeah. I mean, I haven't shaved once since. Actually, no, that's a lie. I I had a job interview, and I shaved for that because I wanted to look presentable for a Skype job interview. So put the suit on. And for those of you wondering, yes, I did put trousers on just to be safe. I wasn't sure how much the camera was going to catch of me, so I made sure to wear a full suit. Um. I was tempted to wear you shoes. Had, no, you, had, you, had, you, had, you had your Spider-Man boxes on, didn't you? Damn right. I went full kit and everything. You never know. You never know. <laughs> you never know when... Uh, I, I was going to say nature calls there. It's obviously the wrong occasion. But yeah. Um, as you do, you know, Skype interviews and all of that. So uh, yeah, other than that, I've literally just let it all grow out. Go full on uh, Grizzly Adams. For those of you, for those golf fans out there that will remember that name. Um it's probably more like that uh, golf player that they call Beef. I can't remember his name. It's, uh, well, anyway, we're, co- we're moving on to a bit of a tangent. I think I'm doing this all by myself. We do this every single week. We just chat absolute nonsense. It was, it, was, it, was, it was a tangent slash monologue going on there, Adam. A little bit, yeah. You feel free to cut me off at any point to have one of your own, Courtney. I feel like uh, I hog it a little bit too much. You sound like you're enjoying yourself, so... I was, yeah. It's just like, you know, having a little bit of a self-therapy session. Yeah. Talking about your uh, your facial hair. Yeah, I think we'll leave it... I've kind of let it go a bit. I've given it like a little neating up because, as as you probably know, like if you leave it, you start looking a bit trampy. Particularly when, like, we know, like, the top, the the, the, the moustache. Yeah. When the, uh, when the hair starts overlapping your top lip, I think it starts looking trampy when it happens. So you need to give it like a little trim. Yeah, I know what you mean. But um, mine's a bit weird. It's kind of like the unfinished goatee. It's like, oh, I have all the facial hair from all over the stubble, the, you know, the bottom of your neck and under your chin and on your sideburns, yeah. all of that. But then, and obviously you've got the moustache that joins with that. But right in the middle, just under your nose, the tip of your nose... It stops on either side, so there's a little bit of a gap. So it looks really, really weird. When you, oh, think, you, need, you, need, you need to do some uh, do some artwork for that. <laughs> to be honest, it's a bit too scruffy, and uh, it will come to a point where once we start getting back to some level of normality, or if there's an occasion where I feel like I need to sort of groom myself again, I'm just going to shave the whole thing off. But um, hopefully, that happens sooner rather than later. But you know. We just got to persevere Adam. and carry on. Adam, yeah, this is a perfect situation to be playing with yourself, mate. Um, what? It is a perfect situation to be playing with yourself, and I know what you're thinking. Dirty-minded. I think no, everybody's thinking, thinking that. that. Right? 
I'm thinking, okay, it's a perfect time to be doing like little like sorting out your facial hair and stuff like that. Because you got to remember, self-esteem is a big thing right now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think the less said on that one, the better. I was, I'm still... I'd, I'd, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so... It sounds like a new problem, mate. I was, be, I was being completely um, completely pure. Well, that's certainly... your mind. In the gutter. Yeah, I, th- I think we've done a 180 on all of that and what's been going on with my mind. I think the less said on that, the better. Yes, let's move on. So, moving on to the Formula One news, guys. It's been a while since we've done that, talking about the Formula One news. So, uh, yeah, so the, I think the news on everybody's lips at the moment in the Formula One world is when on earth are we going to be in a position where we can come back to start racing again? And interestingly, a few different stories have actually been doing the rounds this week, most notably on the F1 website. And I, I get my news updates on F1 directly from the app, which I have on my mobile. And it's a good app if you want to keep up to date with Formula One news, I use it, and uh, yeah, it does the job really. It's a reputable news source. It's directly from the horse's mouth, and I got a nice little notification um, the other day, say a statement from F1 CEO Chase Carey, and basically he was talking about the current situation with COVID nineteen, how the Formula One world and Liberty Media in particular are trying to manage this crisis in the best way that they can. And obviously the question coming to him quite often is when are we going to be able to go racing again? Now, long story short, his statement has basically alluded to a target date being the weekend of the 3rd to the 5th of July in Austria. Now, okay, Mm -hmm. when you edit this video... Yes. Can you please put some celebration music in the background? Yeah, now today. I still think it's a bit premature, though, for that. It's I'm, something. I mean, it's yes, something. it is. These are desperate times. Just, just, just. Even some kind of hope. Just, just let it be. Have some celebration music going. I'm sorry. I just naturally play devil's advocate in these kind of situations. I'm like. I, I, see, I see this, and yes, it's encouraging, and um, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm excited about the possibility that this is a reality, and that this is a realistic target date, and I feel like post-Australia, um, where we had the absolute debacle and shambles of how the Formula One um, bosses handles this uh, situation in Australia... Um, not to go too much into that, they've actually been very, very good and realistic in terms of what they needed to do. Um, funny enough, that was the F1 app making a notification. Again, just remind me to watch uh, uh, the highlights of the 1999 European Grand Prix, famously won by Johnny Herbert in the Stewart, which was the uh, final win of his career. But um, yeah, moving on, from, that's a great race. For those of you who haven't seen it, that was a really, really good race. Um, I definitely recommend that you watch that if you ever get the chance. But... Um, the issue at hand that I always find is that, yes, despite the fact that they were so bad at handling the Australian Grand Prix um, in that situation, since then, 
they've been very, very cautious in terms of how they've been able to manage um, this potential return. They've managed to avoid going about this in the wrong way. They've managed to avoid um, getting people's hopes up with unrealistic targets. Um, I think compared to other sports, you probably agree, Courtney, um, like football, for example, there've been so, particularly in England, there's been so much talk about what's going to happen with the rest of the Premier League season, what's going to be happening in terms of when people can come back to play football, will it be safe to do that, will it be safe to train again, what venues are going to be used, will there be fans, how do we handle the influx of crowds that are going to be turning up to these venues, and etc, 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 just for the sake of getting the season finished. Like football, Formula One in a way, does need to complete the season, maybe more so than football. There has to be some sort of racing in 2020 because of the financial pitfalls that are going to be attributed to that. Now, before I go any further, I'm not advocating protecting the economy over human life. I would never, um, in my right mind, suggest that um, making money or, you know, making the economy go around, you know, I'm, I'm not an economist, I'm an accountant, so there's only so much I can say on this, but I just feel that Formula One, so far, has to continue to be careful about trying to get people's hopes up and trying to put targets or deadlines on going to races and to start racing again without ensuring that the right precautions and procedures are in place to ensure that not only is it right to actually go racing again and safe, but also to make sure that it doesn't become a catalyst to uh, any potential future waves or spikes of COVID-19, because it's a global sport, unlike football, which is restricted and limited to uh, being a national sport. And obviously European and other continents have their own Champions League competitions like that. But Formula One doesn't operate the same way. It's a global event. It's a circus that travels from one country to another. It operates in a completely different world to anything else. So there's a lot of risks and a lot of answer, uh, questions that need to be answered before well, we can do say, that. I think Formula One has a couple of advantages over football in that sense. So first of all, Formula One isn't as reliant on the crowd in terms of the overall spectacle compared to football yeah that's and, true yeah and also the majority of races that are on that calendar take place in rural areas so the risk of um, crowds of people turning up is a lot lower than the Premier League for example so you think about it if West Ham were to play a game at home, come on, it's right, it's right, it's right by Stratford or Westfield. It's, you're going you're gonna to get people outside the grounds and stuff, whereas with Formula One, it's a lot more easier to manage. And also, Formula One, Formula, you know, the whole Formula One community, they are kings when it comes to logistics. This is right up their street. If anybody, If anybody can do it, it would be the people within the Formula One community. Well, I think the advantage, as you've mentioned, and those are a lot of good points, Courtney, um, absolutely agree with them in that regard, that 
The advantage Formula One has, as you mentioned, there's a lot of tracks that go in rural areas at least 20 to 30 miles away from city centres. I mean, for example, um, Spa Fragenschamps is obviously it's situated in a very, very small village um, in Belgium. But the next big city, Brussels, is around about a two hour drive from there. Yeah. Um, from And you know this and I know this from personal experience on when we actually went there. And the age as well. Age. Yes, absolutely. Um, and obviously, we actually we do talk about that in a previous episode. So if you want to know more about that, then we uh, discuss our anecdotes of going there in a previous episode. But uh, yeah, and as you've mentioned, so I mean, Formula One have actually looked into this sort of thing and they've drawn up a potential calendar, which it kind of serves two purposes because it it helps with this current situation how they've actually planned the logistics of what Grand Prix we're going to be going to uh, and when we're going to be doing that and they've broken this down into continents now the reason why this serves a second purpose is there was always this talk for a few years now of wanting to increase the number of races on the Formula 1 Canada to around 24-25 a season right now uh, we have 20 to 21 Around about, we yeah. were meant to have twenty-one, but obviously there were certain Grand Prix that had to be eluded. Now, breaking this down into continents makes this a lot easier. And this was always going to be the plan, but they've decided that this is probably something that they can bring forward, and it's an opportunity for future seasons to show that this will work logistically and will be more beneficial from a financial perspective for all of the teams involved. So, right now on the Formula One app or on the Formula One page, they've released an image which uh, Courtney and myself have both plugged on our Instagram pages. So check those out if you want to see them. Um, Or check out the DNF1 podcast Instagram page, which is DNF1 underscore podcast. Um, And on that, it shows the image of the targeted 2020 calendar. And the predicted season start, as we mentioned before, was Austria, uh, the weekend of the 3rd to 5th of July. And the way that they plan it is as follows. So between July and September months, they want to do all the races that are going to take place in Europe, which is reasonable because a lot of the summer races do take place in Europe, um, which would include Austria, the British Grand Prix, potentially the German Grand Prix again at Hockenheim because it usually alternates. And of course, um, I believe, I can't remember, I don't think the German Grand Prix was, was that going to be included in the calendar? I can't remember. Um, I imagine it. I imagine it would. Yeah. No. Actually, no. I'm. I'm right. Actually, Courtney. It didn't. Yes. Yeah, so the German Grand Prix didn't actually appear on the original calendar, and oh. yeah, that was the Grand Prix that was missed. I remember that was the shock. See, this is what happens in a COVID nineteen situation like this. We've completely forgotten, um, or, or lost all rationale towards what we were expecting this season. It's just shifted so far now because of that. Um, but yeah, that's right. The German Grand Prix wasn't actually going to be included on the calendar. It got pushed aside for to accommodate the Dutch Grand Prix and the Vietnamese Grand Prix, which neither are taking place this season as a result of the COVID-19 situation. And um, according to a source in Germany, the Grand Prix itself was still possible to appear on the current calendar in Hockenheim. Um, Formula One and or Formula One management and Liberty Media had contacted the circuit organisers to ask um, the lead time to host the Grand Prix. Basically, how much time would they need to get everything ready to host the Grand Prix, especially under the certain circumstances? Yeah. Um, nothing's been confirmed so far, so it's a rumour. But it's a good place where if you want to get as many races as possible and the target 
as Ross Braun mentioned before, uh, and Chase Kerry echoed, is still around 15 to 18 races for this season. You know, that there's going to be other races on the calendar that may ask for, to, for the European portion of that season. For example, Imola, the San Marino Grand Prix. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard um, that rumour that they've offered, um, they've offered, haven't they, Imola? Yes, and that was and the idea of that would be held after the Italian Grand Prix race to aid uh, from a logistics perspective. It'd be very easy because they border yeah. each other, and it'd be very easy to hold a race at Monza and then move straight to Imola, um, which they never did, even in the older days of Formula One when the San Marino Grand Prix was on the calendar, um, and that was discontinued, I believe. Oh, trying to memory serves me right. I think it was discontinued after two thousand and six. Yeah, I think you're right there. Yeah. When I think Michael Schumacher might have been the last winner, or Fernando Alonso, one of the two. It's, it's so long ago. It makes me feel old when I think back to that, going through my own childhood like that. But yeah, um, the European races for July, September. Now, one race that obviously is in huge doubt and is very unlikely, um, and perhaps some F1 fans won't be too disappointed to hear this, is the French Grand Prix being cancelled. And that was announced last week. That was going to be confirmed. That was going to be cancelled. Um, mostly because the French government had prohibited all sporting events to take place prior to September, which included the uh, football national uh, competitions in in France, Ligue 1 and Ligue 2. Uh, Ligue 2, I should say, not 2, that's 3. Um, which would be Ligue 1 and 2 in France. Those have both been null and voided. Um, in line with this government protocol and legislation. And Formula One is no different in that regard, where the French Grand Prix has been um, indefinitely postponed and most likely will not take place even under this revised calendar. So then from September to October, they move on to Eurasia and Asia. So that'll be potentially maybe the return of the Chinese Grand Prix. We mentioned in a previous episode that uh, the Porsche World Endurance Championship or team were doing some tests at a private event in Shanghai um, which was the didn't first they some, um, didn't they have some horse racing recently in Hong Kong I don't know did they I think so so I think I think they are doing some kind of sporting events in China at the moment hmm. I mean they were the first country obviously to go through this outbreak where the virus originated from um, and they were also not too long ago, uh, Wuhan in particular, the epicenter for it when it first started, they uplifted their lockdown, uh, lifted their lockdown, I should say, and obviously have eased back into some sense of normality, which includes sporting events taking place there. So, yeah, um, I don't know personally if that's true. Um, let us know in the comments section, guys, if you know of that and if that is the case. But, of course, there's always been the aim since this begun to include the Chinese Grand Prix on the F1 calendar. And obviously this serves as the right opportunity to do that. Um, other races like Japan. Um, I don't know about Vietnam personally. If they can try it, then great. But I wouldn't be surprised if that got held back a year. Um, which would be a shame for them. October, November, they're going to be doing Asia and the America races. So obviously the Canadian Grand Prix might return Unlikely being a street circuit and so close to Montreal, so probably no. Um, but there's certainly the uh, Grand Prix in, Tex in Austin, Texas, definitely an option. And then December, December ending the season in um, Abu Dhabi. That's the season finale you, you, in the Gulf. There are races you look at. Yeah. Like Texas, um, Bahrain, Abu Dhabi, and I think that'd be very easy. 
They'll be very easy to do in comparison. As you said, like street circuits, I can't, I can't see Singapore happening. No, so I think the first rule of thumb would be to um, eliminate all street circuits. Yeah. So, obviously, these, some of these races were going to happen anyway, but Albert Park, Australia, definitely no. Um, Monaco, definitely not. Even if they could, there's not really a time where you could fit it in. Monaco is quite unique and that it has certain times in the year where you can actually host the Grand Prix. And even in the event where we are in now, where nothing is happening in Monaco, you can't just simply plop it in. It has a specific time when Formula One needs to happen in Monaco or it just yeah. can't happen. That's that's already going to be gone by the time we even get to the point where we may, if in a best case scenario where we're racing again in Austria. And I think we should stress all of that we're talking about right now is best case scenario. So another reason why I'm a little sceptical, but of course we can go into that a bit more um, as and when. Uh, what other races? I mean, Canada, we've mentioned, as I said, unlikely because it's so close to Montreal in that regard. And it is a street circuit in its nature, so definitely not there. Singapore, Azerbaijan, definite no-no. Um, for me, uh, I I can't see... I mean, that was originally touted as a potential start date for the calendar, but this was overly optimistic before we started to grasp the actual reality of the situation. So definitely not in Azerbaijan in the middle of Baku city center. So yeah, I mean, we look at those races, so we're looking at more of the old fashioned races. So I suppose for an F1 purist, Courtney, um, there is some positive, I suppose to take from this is the races of the past that people used to know and love bar the exception of one or two used to be on these rural proper formula one circuits where you wouldn't have too many runoff areas it'd be old gravel it'd be a long way from the city centers so yeah it's kind of a bit of a on there um there's also uh potential for there to be double headers in austria and great britain yes that's another good point i'm glad you mentioned that because that brings us around to this so yeah there's also been news about the british grand prix uh, there was a notification that was sent out by Stuart Pringle, who was the managing director of the Silverstone circuit, to basically inform fans that the British Grand Prix is not going to be going ahead in its current format. And that doesn't mean that it's not going to happen this year. Of course, that normally happens in the second week of July after Austria. And this year in particular, Stuart Pringle has said to fans that if the British Grand Prix does happen, it's going to be behind closed doors. Um, and, and the reason for this notification was to offer fans an opportunity to either request a refund for their tickets or to forego them and actually use them next year when ideally we might be back to some sort of normal racing circumstances for the 2021 season. So, as Courtney mentioned, Austria uh, Britain in particular, two venues where they've offered to host races back-to-back, so one week after the other... Um, you wouldn't have a race like Saturday, Sunday, Monday. You'd have a Saturday, Sunday event, and then you'd have another Saturday, Sunday event, uh, event uh, the subsequent week after that. So, I mean, that's a good way. I, I feel that you could incorporate certain races. I know we there was always that talk about uh, doing a reverse race, like at Silverstone, for example. They, yeah. they talked about that. Now, it does sound a fun idea, and I think the races Scott Mitchell did a tutorial lap on the races YouTube uh, channel which you should definitely check this out because it's really good video and what he does he actually does a lap around the Silverstone circuit in reverse on the F1 2019 game 
and he actually showcases what the track would be like, how you would go about it on a hot lap to the best of visibility, and obviously some of the uh, permutations and prerequisites that would be required in order to make sure that the track was not only safe for drivers, but obviously for any potential attending fans. Now, of course, that's not going to be an issue because there aren't going to be fans there anyway, but there were some issues that did look very difficult to resolve and more importantly look very complicated to resolve uh, in terms of a weak turnaround to actually make it safe to uh, to yeah. race. I think another issue that needs to be looked at is how do we uh, incorporate having on-track marshals because, of course, I'm of the opinion where social distancing doesn't look like that's going to go away anytime soon, even if we're in a situation where lockdowns are lifted. Um, and there are a lot less restrictions on what you can do in terms of this outbreak when it comes to its uh, latter stages, hopefully sooner rather than later, how you manage to have the right number of marshals in the right areas on the track, but also maintaining and respecting social distancing. I suppose it'll come down to testing, Adam. Yeah, um, there's got to be some procedures in place. I mean, my guess would be that teams would be able to purchase test kits to be able to test their drivers, their staff, um, you know, anyone to, that goes to these events working with the team. And it's going to be purely people involved in the actual competition, not necessarily guests or anything like that. That's going to be mitigated to completely no one other than the essential travellers. Um, sorry, is my phone buzzing there? Someone messaging me. I should put, they put that on silent. There we go. And again, never happens in singles. Um, yeah, so that's something that they could incorporate and I feel like probably something they should be able to do when it's safer to purchase. I mean, because one thing I think we need to avoid is a situation where um, Formula One teams are purchasing these kits now because it, it takes the kits away from people that need them, more importantly. And that's certainly something that's been in the news a lot, how certain governments um, in particular are not testing enough in some countries the last thing formula one wants to be seen as an instigator for buying too many kits for inappropriate causes if you want to call racing an inappropriate cause in this current situation um and and also perhaps being a catalyst for you know transmitting this virus or you know spreading it even worse so there are those. Say, yeah. It is in, you know, the first event is in just over two months' time. In terms of in terms of testing, I think because of the importance of testing when it comes to getting back to normality, a lot will be invested into testing, and I think there'll be a lot. I'm just being an optimist here. I think there'll be a lot of progress when it comes to the number of test kits available by the time we get to July. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fair point. Um, I think it is strange because it's something that I've always personally felt that, and I'm not going to talk about specific governments in particular. I, I'll leave you guys to do your own research on some that are doing better than others. Um, I mean, I've always admired the New Zealand approach to this COVID nineteen situation, where they've actually where they've took a no nonsense approach. Um, South Korea as well, another country that's literally just tested, tested, tested and done everything yeah. that they could. Um, 
just to note, pull out two in particular that I feel that are doing a good job. Um, and it's, as I said, it's one of those situations where people have to really take stock and make sure that we're not putting ourselves in a position where we're trying to force the issue of making Formula One happen as soon as possible, as much as we want it to, when we haven't put ourselves in a situation around the world where we feel like it's safe to start doing that again. I mean, we talked about before, Courtney, I think back in the episode when, uh, before the, uh, as the Australian Grand Prix had got cancelled, that Formula One operates in a completely different world to the rest of the world. And this is kind of the first time in a very, very long time where the Formula One world has to coexist with the yeah. restrictions and the needs of the real world and put that first as a precedent over its own. And we don't want to verge back into that realm where Formula One can kind of work within its own rules that don't necessarily fit the, the criteria of what's required in the real world or at least wor- or worse, hinder it. Um, so there's that obstacle that has to be managed I think in terms of a uh, an ethical standpoint, I think I think the you know the Formula One again the Formula One community should be looked at in a good light overall because you think about what the uh, the engineers have been doing helping develop uh, ventilators and stuff. So I think from an ethical standpoint, I think the Formula One community will come out well from this, even if they were deemed to be like using test test kits to make events happen yeah you're absolutely right uh, I think that that point does need to be made I know I've said a lot of stuff that make it seem like oh this ain't going right but no one thing that Formula 1 should be commended for is the team's work and their own efforts in improving uh, the resources available uh, particularly Mercedes in particular with their um, with what they've done and uh, you know, other teams as well. Everyone's played their part, not to single one out in particular, but some of the innovations Mercedes have made have been absolutely brilliant. And every team has diverted resources to improve the situation and create pieces of breathing apparatus and devices that have been transferred and used by uh, many health services across the world. I mean, one particular one that comes to mind is that um, device that Mercedes had helped with uh, to reverse engineer with UCL, and they managed to turn that around in less than what was it, 24 hours or something like that, and were able to produce a working version of it that they could send out within a hundred, yeah. uh, which is incredible. It's, it's amazing. We don't appreciate how brilliant and in- innovative these young, bright minds are that work in Formula One. They really do have some of the most intelligent people in the world working in the sport. They really do. Well, applause to them because they didn't have to. They didn't have to. Uh, they they easily could have just kept their minds on Formula One. So that's that's what I'm saying. That's why I feel that you know people should look at Formula One in a good light rather than a negative light. Because I know we keep comparing the football, but football does seem to be to be about the money. That that's the reputation it has, whether it be right or wrong. Well, I think, I think Formula One mm. instantly, Formula One instantly, you know, gave back and have helped, you know, in this battle against coronavirus. Whereas with football, 
there was um, the players, you know, were, were hoping that their money reductions were going towards charities in NHS and stuff. But there were stories about certain clubs trying to furlough their staff. So there was a negative press when it comes to football compared to Formula One. I think football is a very easy target. Um, yeah. I mean, for example, we can talk about the, uh, the health secretary in the UK, Matt Hancock. Uh, he was asked a question about this um, when he was taking questions on behalf of Boris Johnson, who at the time was recovering from COVID-19. Of course, thankfully, he's much better now. And I suppose probably a good opportunity to congratulate him and his partner on uh, the birth of their first child, which obviously came out in the news today. Um, so, you know, congratulations to them on that. But man ha- Matt Hancock was asked a question about Premier League footballers and obviously stuff that they're doing to help out. And he came out and said that they need to be doing more or need to dig into their pockets, not to paraphrase him too much or misquote what he said. I'm not going to do that. But the gist of it was um, he, he basically swerved the attention towards them and obviously the clubs that had furloughed their staff, as you'd mentioned, and particularly players that perhaps were in the process of donating money to charities or putting up initiatives to help out, which they were already doing because the fact that they all came out very, very quickly after that suggested that it was not reactionary. This was something they always planned to do. And I feel like sometimes footballers do get a bad rep on this because particularly in England, it's very much uh, well known that footballers are very easily targeted when they've done something wrong. I mean, we talk about uh, memories of the past of, for example, David Beckham. I very much remember that situation where he kicked out at the uh, Atletico Madrid manager, Diego Simeone, when they played against each other in the 98 World Cup, where he got red carded, if you remember that, Courtney. Um, I remember. Yeah, uh, very much. I mean, Englishmen, we remember that very well, English football fans. And... For the next three years, David Beckham was booed, he was harassed, he was taunted. Uh, Some people were even going to the extremes of building effigies of him and burning them um, and sending death threats. Yeah, I know what happened. I I know where that happened as well. Yeah, it was disgraceful behaviour, which we would never commend at all. You know, in general, you wouldn't do that um, to people in general, let alone footballers. But apparently that these people are... So it's okay to target them for abuse or slander them and everything else because they earn bucket loads of money for what they do. And the point that we're trying to make is that, yes, footballers, they don't contribute in the same way that Formula people involved in Formula One would. For example, uh, you know, the, the technicians, the innovator, the brilliant geniuses that work in the sport. But what footballers are able to contribute is the vast sums of money that they have um, in terms of being able to donate money to good causes and use their reputation and their voice that they have and their influence to actually do good, which I believe there's a lot that does happen that doesn't get reported for footballers. So where Formula One can contribute with the technology, the minds, the geniuses that they have to improve the sport, and of course the production facilities that the manufacturers all have, which they've put to very good use, they do that their way and for, and footballers will be able to donate money and donate to good causes, buy the PPE and distribute that to local health care and care homes and everywhere across the world that need it most. So I agree. Um, you know, it, they give different things, but sometimes I do feel compared to Formula One, footballers do get 
much, much worse treatment in terms of how they're perceived in the media because some footballers, for example, and I'm not going to target, I'm not going to pick this person out purely because of who it is. I'm going to pick him out because he's most likely the highest earner. So just as a quick comparison, um, you don't try... If Lewis Hamilton was put out in the spotlight, and Lewis has been targeted before, but I'm surprised yeah. that news um, outlets or media have not tried to target Lewis Hamilton in particular because Lewis is the sort of person that does a lot of good things and raises a lot of awareness and is involved in a lot of good causes. Um, which only people in the Formula 1 community seem to acknowledge and praise him for. But when it comes to a situation like this in terms of money, I'm surprised being probably the highest earner in the sport, he hasn't been targeted more by the media or tried to get people on his back to do more than he already is, which is already a lot. They they don't don't usually um, hold back in targeting Lewis Hamilton. Yeah, and I don't mind going on record saying this because I'm an accountant, so I understand this this situation quite well. When Lewis Hamilton was targeted the other year for um, his private jet that he no longer owns, and obviously the situation with that was that they claimed that he was um, reclaiming the tax on it and he wasn't paying it properly, which was completely misinformation because he was reclaiming it on behalf of his business and it wasn't used from a personal perspective. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details of how that works and how that's legal, but the fact is what he was doing was legal from a business perspective, but newspapers weren't interested in that. They just saw Lewis Hamilton uh, claims back 10 million, or however much it was, millions of pounds in tax on a jet used by his business um, ventures, but they didn't put. They just put that on there saying Lewis Hamilton doesn't pay tax. So it, you see that bad press that Lewis has got in Britain, and in the British media, and it makes you wonder why in this situation when footballers are being targeted and disgraced or being ridiculed for not doing certain things when the fact is they are, why Lewis is not getting that either. It's quite surprising. Or maybe they just haven't missed a step. It's, 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 it's because, I've, I could be wrong, but I feel that um, Lewis Hampton has kind of kept himself low-key through this. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's probably the um, smart I'm thing to do. So. Yeah. Uh, it's probably the smart thing to do. I mean, it, the only time I've seen him in the media or anything on social media, stuff that he's put out about how he's missed going racing or how to wash your hands properly or that time when he was worried about getting infected when he was at a gathering for Tommy Hilfinger, uh, Hilfinger um, with Idris Elba, who had tested positive for the virus as well. Um, and you're right, I, I'd probably say for Lewis, it's probably better for him to do that and just go about doing uh, supporting services and you know charities in the way that he does in private which sometimes I think is probably best you know if I was a celebrity or someone that earned as much money as Lewis did touch wood you never know I might get lucky one day and do that um it's I I would probably prefer to go about these businesses private I wouldn't really want my charitable activities being put out in the media even now, stuff that I would do for charity or money that I give to charity, I certainly wouldn't want put out in the media. It's no one's business. I don't need people to. And also, and also if, you, if 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 they were to do that, they'd be oh, they're only doing it for the glory. Exactly. Like, like they can't win. And, you know, you, you pointed it out earlier on. It is there is this like perception that if you do have a lot of money, you you can't win actually. Well, I give an example. I give an example on this one. Not to go off too much. We will go back to topic soon on this yeah. one. But with the footballer thing in mind, um, obviously there's been talk about Meza Ozil, where he's been targeted specifically 
um, because it was leaked out at Arsenal Football Club that he was one of the three players, apparently, now this isn't proven, but apparently he was one of the three players that originally refused the pay cut um, because he wanted to defer it and give more money perhaps later on or wanted to find out the truth as to why Arsenal Football Club needed them to take the pay cut. Was it for the right ethical causes or was it just for them to save money or to stop their owners from putting money into the club? So when that backlash came and certain journalists, and I won't name them because I'm not putting them on this podcast, I don't think they deserve that, right? Um, I've targeted him and and basically jumped on his back once again because he's an easy target um, and he's the highest earner at Arsenal Football Club. So it's one that's going to put in the headlines rather than talk about the other two players because they wouldn't have sold papers. um, Yeah, and that was a bit bizarre. They they had to yeah, and this was followed up by stories in the news of stuff that Ozil was involved in good things where they've donated loads of PPE, they've paid for surgeries for children in uh, poorer countries that needed the help, and all the other good things that he's done and used his money for. That had to come out to respond to this to make it seem like this is actually what he's doing. Don't think he's just taking three hundred fifty grand a week playing Fortnite all the time and not playing as well as he could do, whilst someone who's on two grand a week at Arsenal who's a junior coming in, potentially, and they're giving up 15% of their salary, which they're going to need more than Ozil will. It's ridiculous how the news can pick up on stuff like that and try to make it seem like it's being the voice of reason for the public. But the reality is they're just using it to sell papers and shame someone else. So make of that what you will, really. Um, Run over, Adam. <laughs> yeah, do you know what? I do, they do rile you up, these sorts of things. I see this and I just think, oh my God, people just use your common sense. You know, that's, think. That's, that's, that's why I'm pleased that this social media age is coming along now. Because obviously, you, people can still be indoctrinated by things, but you're able to analyse information better. Oh, yeah, yeah. Before social media, you couldn't search anything up. It was... The news was what was printed in front of you. Yeah, it's crazy. And uh, I suppose in a way this is why we have a podcast, because we want to be more reputable. No, (laughs) speak our minds. So we decided to buy a microphone, a laptop, and then just rant every week. (laughs) And I'm not going to lie, I'm having a lot of fun doing that. I don't know about you, Colney. I I, 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 I could tell. Yeah. I'm loving it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, yeah. As I said, that's the current situation in Formula 1 regarding that. Of course, Liberty Media, we probably should talk about this. Um, There's the financial repercussions to the Formula 1 calendar. Now, unlike football, where particularly in the Premier League, where they have these massive TV deals and there's a lot of money that's being put into these clubs, and even some of them are having to take measures to survive this COVID-19 situation whenever they can get back underway. But Formula 1... It's a lot more difficult for a lot of teams, and even the manufacturer teams. Of course, we already were well aware, even in good financial times, um, when six months ago, when things were a lot more peachy before this COVID-19 situation, there are a lot of teams in the paddock that were worried about the current financial regulations, and one of which was the cost cap that was being muted around. Now, originally, it was around $175 million dollars, Uh, for 2021 Uh, that wasn't going to be even policed properly until 2022 that got reduced to 150 million then 145 million and then 130 million dollars in 2022 after the latest online meeting between the world's motorsport council which meets online now um, post-covid-19 now 
uh, a recent article that was published by The Independent states that Christian Horner, the boss of Red Bull, wants to lower this F1 budget cap even lower to $80 million in order to keep, as he said, in order to keep the wheels turning during the coronavirus shutdown. Now, that's huge. I mean, to put this in perspective, $80 million is around about a quarter of what Ferrari, Mercedes and Red Bull would spend each during one year in the sport. Yeah. <laughs> that, and that's crazy. Like, considering what they do and what they have and how much they would spend. And then you take a team, for example, like... Uh, I was trying to think. Racing Point, I think, to pick one out. Um, even though they're going to be uh, massively financially supported by Lawrence Stroll's consortium. And obviously, Toto Wolff has acquired quite a large stake in the Aston Martin brand, F1 brand. So, you know, we will talk about that in a future episode, what Toto Wolff's allegiance is in terms of his future is concerned, because that's shaping up to be quite an interesting talking point. But moving back to the budget cap situation, Courtney, there seems to be this growing urgent need to have something put in place quite extreme um, in order to ensure that teams at the lower end of the uh, money spectrum, if you like, um, you know, to ensure that those teams are able to survive, not only during this coronavirus situation, but also the post-COVID-19 situation. Um, well, yeah, because uh, you, you can understand that the bigger teams are accepting there isn't really much of a race with just six cars in it. So, you know, they've got to make sure there are as many cars on that grid as possible because that's, that's, that's the main spectacle of the whole event, really. Yeah, I mean, we've seen what a six-car race looks like in Formula 1. For those of you that remember the 2005 US Grand Prix in Indianapolis, which was won by Michael Schumacher, um, that six-car races are not very popular in Formula 1. Um, no, even if all six cars were very close together on like that race where it was literally just the two Ferraris and they were never going to fight each other. Um, and, and, you know, that's how it was. The battle for third place was the one that people wanted to see that was half a minute behind them. But I digress. But in this case, that, I mean, coming from Christian Horner, um, I think it's a good idea to look at reducing the budget cap for this season even lower. It is this... Uh... You know, if if he follows it up, it is big news for for somebody from on the big teams to say that that is big news. It is big news, and and I think it's a great endorsement. However, again, and I'm going to play devil's advocate on this one again because even though I think it's a good idea to help ensure that these smaller teams are not only given the opportunity to survive in the sport when their revenue streams are going to literally be down to the bare minimum. Um, let alone what's going on with Liberty Media and Formula One in terms of a business enterprise. But it also makes sure that these smaller teams do not fall behind when the season does start. Because let's not forget, these cost caps are put in place for 2021-2022 when eventually the new rules kick into place as they've been revised, uh, pushed back a year. But they don't want to be in a situation where the bigger teams now know that they've got two years effectively or perhaps at the least one extra year in terms of development on the current cars before the new ones take precedent again, to put loads and loads of money into their current cars. And the resulting factor of that would most likely be where the smaller teams can't put in that kind of money, that the bigger teams are just going to create an even larger gulf 
to the competition than they already have, similar to what happened in 2017 and 2014 as well. Um, So from that, um, I would look at that and say that also as an additional devil's advocate claim that perhaps Christian Horner is saying this with his Red Bull cap on, perhaps saying that he's very confident in the RB16, where it stands now compared to the rest of the grid, and also bearing in mind that Unlike Ferrari and Mercedes, they use the Honda powered engines. They're a supplier. Uh, sorry, they're a customer to Honda. Oh, of course, yeah. So Honda will put the bill up to develop their engine that Red Bull would have already paid for as their agreement. And then Red yeah. Bull can divert limited resources that everybody has to their car. But their car is so good that this will favour them in the long run for the season. I'm not insinuating that's the main... Um, that's the rationale for Christian Horner's statement to reduce the budget. I very much agree that this is necessary to continue the sport, um, not only for all the teams, but also the venues as well. But there is part of me that does look at this and think perhaps he's trying to mitigate, not necessarily the smaller teams catching Red Bull, but stopping Ferrari and Mercedes from spending ridiculous amounts of money to not only pull away from Red Bull, but force Red Bull to have to spend lots of money to keep up. Because they can't exactly just say no. They're kind of put in a position where they're damned if they do, damned if they don't. Like a Cap 22, so... Well, that's the thing, well... That is their job, to be fair, to do their best to be number one. So, you know, you can't you can't really judge him for that. You know, if he's trying to think of any possible way for to take any kind of advantage going into the next couple of years or so, you can't really blame him for doing it. No, no, I, I can't either. I mean, his quotes, he said that he suggested that this is probably the best idea um, and, and it would be to legalise customer cars. Currently, teams can buy a limited amount of components from the bigger teams, engines, gearboxes, suspension, the main components, but they can't buy the entire design of a car and replicate the following year. Almost like a little dig at the RP20 that is very similar to a W10 Mercedes. <laughs> you beat me too. Yeah, that that's it seems to be the common dig. We forgot about the obviously for those of you that haven't seen it, do check out our episode in preseason testing where we talk about the RP20 looking very similar to a 2018 or 2019 Mercedes W10, I should say, which ain't a bad place to start really. Uh, and Haas did the same with Ferrari in 2017. He goes on to say this would be the cheapest way to address the issue, their plight and the quickest way to be competitive as well. Referring to the smaller teams, uh, Gunther Steiner, the Haas boss, thinks that this is just a way to manipulate smaller teams' performances, which I can understand, really. Um, But again, it depends on which side of the coin you're on and obviously which team you work with. Of course, someone like Christian Horner is going to be protecting his own interests, as all the other teams will do. Um, and, and mitigating costs is going to benefit everybody if it's regulated, but it does mean that if you've got a very competitive car already, you've got more chance of being successful and maintaining that advantage than you would do if you're a team that spent a lot of money, um, like Ferrari, for example, and still have a little bit of catching up to do. Um, so, yeah, make of that what you will, guys. Um, I think we, you know... Uh, trying to wrap this up in the next 10 minutes or so because I realise we're a bit pressed for time. Um, in addition to this, we uh, there was that mention of that story from Liberty Media. So, Courtney, this, uh, there was a story in the week for, uh, about Liberty Media. Okay. Where 
they have transferred a 33% stake from the event promoter that works with them, Live Nation, to the satellite radio broadcaster Sirius XM. Now, long story short of this one, guys, this uh, allowed them to generate further cash liquidity or cash in hand, if you like, uh, by approximately $1.4 billion, which is a pretty sizable a chunk of funds there. The reason for this is so that they've managed to have an extra $1.4 billion of cash to generate to the teams and track venues in order to survive the coronavirus shutdown. Now, of course, as we know, with the certain teams and certain tracks that are not able to go to and host races, it does take away the money that they would generate in revenue. Of course, the tracks themselves would pay a host fee to Formula One to host these events and obviously would generate a lot of revenue from fans that turn up. Now, if you're going to have races that are going to be raced behind closed doors and some races may not even have a host the events at all, you're losing a large amount of revenue that you're going to be taking for the year. I mean, they earn revenue throughout the year anyway. And of course, other events which aren't taking place at the moment. And Formula One is always the flagship event at these circuits every single year. So to take that away from them, there has to be a massive need to generate some form of revenue. And by doing this, Liberty Media, um, it's a very good initiative if it's true, what they're trying to do to give them money in advance to help them through this. I mean, we should stress this is mainly for... Um, the teams that need the money. So Williams, uh, McLaren in in some regard, Haas, Renault, just to name a few. These are the sorts of teams that definitely need the money, not necessarily the manufacturer teams or Racing Point, which has got the Lawrence Stroll slash Toto Wolf consortium um, to financially support them during this time. And ticket sales at certain tracks uh, have been completely blocked because... Most of the races, if not all of them, are going to be behind closed doors this season if and when we get some Formula 1 action. The aim this season is to complete 15 to 18 races, but as I said before, Chase Carey, the CEO of Liberty Media and Formula 1 Management, has repeated that F1 will begin at some point this summer and that they have scenarios for zero races, anywhere from 15 to 18 races, uh, and races that begin with no fans present and only the team. So... It's a nice gesture from them. I mean, it's good to see that they're putting money into the sport and making sure that the continuity of it is remaining. Because at the end of the day, the last thing that you is want... the most important yeah, thing. You don't want teams and tracks to have to pull out of the sport or pull no. out altogether. Because what happens in a post-COVID-19 world is you'll have nowhere to race, except for Monaco, because that's basically a free event. Um, Was it? Yeah. yeah. I don't, don't want to get too into the uh, politics and economics of things, but through this whole thing, people have to be, um, companies and governments have to use up reserves in order to make sure we go back to normality and kickstart once this is all over. Yeah, and that's, that's going to that's gonna take a lot longer than just turning up to Austria and all of a sudden everything's back to normal. You may, we may not find ourselves back in a normal situation until 2021, 2022, mm. when everything gets flipped on its head again. So still a lot to be you know, changed. Um, and in addition to this, there was obviously talk about upgrades to the cars, when we're going to expect to see those and work from the teams. When are they going to be able to go back to 
working on the cars and going back to some form of normality. And this brings us nicely to the final thing we should talk about in this episode, that the um, the FIA with the World Motorsport Council, we talked about this before already, that, as I said, they announced the extension of the mandatory shutdown period for 35 to 63 days and for manufacturers 35 to 49. Now, I know we talked about this earlier in this episode, so I'm not sort of double repeating myself or anything like that. But this does have a factor in terms of the aerodynamic developments and power unit developments, because obviously the idea for them is to mitigate teams from going back to work to get an advantage. But at the same time, it's about trying to find a safe working environment where the teams are actually able to go back to work again. When are they going to be able to work on their cars? How much money is going to be used for them in terms of their development. You know, all of these things have to be taken into account. And I feel like before we go racing again, nothing is going to happen until all of the teams are able to come back to work in a safe environment. I know some teams have already taken steps. Ferrari have already introduced their uh, return to work program where they're slowly but surely increasing the workload at the Ferrari Centre in uh, in, um, Maranello. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's kind of like, I think a similar example to compare it to, Courtney, would be when you have a race where you have dry to wet conditions or wet to dry and someone sends a guinea pig car out that's got nothing to fight for, puts them out on an alternate strategy and everybody literally watches them like a guinea pig to see if their times are that much faster to prompt them from doing the same thing. Um, and, and this is what Formula One is doing now. It's kind of very, very slowly taking its time to keep an eye on this situation and watch what other people are doing. And if that situation improves and it starts to be beneficial, then perhaps the wheels will start to go in motion again. And we might start to see more teams start to take these initiatives on, get back to work again, and perhaps we'll start to realise a more realistic date as to when this Formula 1 season is going to restart. You know what? I just had a random thought. What's that? This could be a real opportunity for Formula One as a sport, you know. Do you want me, you want me ready, ready for me to elaborate? Yeah, yeah, no, by all means, yeah, we got time. Um, there's going to be no other life sport on. No, no, that's, oh. that's absolutely right. I mean, esports has taken centre stage, and as a commentator for a few. Uh, online racing leagues I can definitely say that there's a lot more interest in that area uh, especially in the F1 events that they do on TV as well yeah. um, based on this sort of stuff and yeah you're right Corn. it's a great opportunity for any sort of live sport that needs to take place to actually happen and Formula 1 probably will most likely go back to being a sport like being live on television again than probably others purely by nature but the fact that it's a lot easier as you said to host events where there are no fans they can do it behind closed and doors. People are going to be so eager to watch some kind of sport that people that aren't massively into Formula One or previously weren't into it at all will have some kind of interest in it because it's something. It's like during the summer when there's no football on. Let's be honest, none of us are massive cricket fans. But we're more interested in the cricket when the football isn't on. Yeah, no, you're right. I, I mean, the Cricket World Cup last year for us in England was brilliant. Um, yeah. The 
the Ashes as well equally because even though we lost the Ashes series, we'll always remember for that day where Ben Stokes single-handedly won the Test match on his own by batting for what seemed like an eternity. Uh, and obviously Wimbledon, That obviously that's not happening this year, but Wimbledon, the tennis... Uh, that happens every summer in Britain. It's one of those flagship events in the summer that we always build up to. And Formula One is very much a big part of that uh, post-football season. And as you're absolutely right, it, it could play a huge role in terms of shaping sport for the future. And obviously having centre stage as being the only major sport of its kind that's going to exist. So it will bring a large TV audience. And I think that kind of absolutely. brings us... It kind of brings us on to our last point I think we should talk about before we wrap this episode up is what is a post Formula One, uh, sorry, a post COVID 19 world going to look like for Formula One? Um, from not just a racing perspective, but also from an entrepreneurial perspective, a business perspective. Because that's something that, we, that I feel like needs to be addressed and people perhaps haven't given enough thought to. For example, um, what businesses do they invest in? What technologies should we be looking into invest in the future? And Formula One's always been at the forefront of these things, these innovations to kind of lead the way, be the pioneers for this kind of entrepreneurial um, mindset. And well, yeah, the, the world as we know it could well change. You know, there's going to be a lot more emphasis on looking after the planet and stuff because people have seen how the world has been well. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna sound really. Uh, I don't know. Put your Al Gore cape on. yeah. But people have seen how the world has almost been healing because humanity has taken a rest. Yeah, I mean we've seen the memes that you can see so, that off in the distance and stuff like that. Yeah. So that's why. I mean, so the, it, it might, it might not. In the doubt, I can't, I can't, I can't speak on behalf of the of the human race, but. It, there could be massive changes to the way we operate. So, as you're right, it would have a knock-on effect to our Formula One innovates, particularly when it comes to um, carbon footprint. Yeah, it, it does. And I think Formula One, the logistics element of travelling to continents and hosting races in a continent moving to another one is something that was going to happen sooner rather than later. Um, but purely with that in mind, and Formula One, in terms of the sustainability perspective and I think I read this right I read an article on this it's actually the most um, um, economically and environmentally sustainable sport out there with the exception of Formula E Um, and of course there's a great article on why Formula E in particular is so environmentally friendly and why it's growing in stature and popularity because of that and of course because it's a very quickly impressive motorsport I've, I've followed it for a while now and I've always enjoyed it for a lot of reasons it does need to get a little bit faster granted but in time that will happen you know it's still five six years since it begun and it's come such a long way um in the generations of cars that it's produced in a short time and Formula One was no different Formula One took a good 20 30 years before it really boomed um as a global sport even though it really was, it really did take a long time before that happened, um, before it became the pinnacle. Um, I think from an entrepreneurial perspective, Courtney, I would say that the budget cap situation is an important factor and that does need to be looked at. And yeah. may this may serve as a catalyst to actually get something put down that's sustainable for every single team and can suit their, their own narratives and please 
not everybody, but certainly the majority, to make it work um, and make the sport better for it. It doesn't necessarily have to be as fast as it possibly can. Formula One teams and Formula One in general has always had restrictions and limitations. What's always been the appeal is how teams have been able to take those limitations and then go beyond them, but also at the same time within them. Um, Some more than others. But we won't go into that too much. And of course, maybe investing in businesses that promote remote working, home working, safer environments, perhaps that's something that has been overlooked for a long time. But given the nature of the world that we see it right now is one thing we've realized is that the world can still exist um, from a professional perspective with a lot of remote and home working. I mean, I'm working from home, oh, yeah. and that would have never been considered before when I when I was working there. I'd worked where I work at the moment. I've worked there for about five, six years, and this is the first time I've actually ever worked from home properly. Um, and there's not really been that many complications other than the fact that I can wake up five minutes before my shift, turn my laptop on, and get cracking, and I won't have to worry about travel every day. Um We've moved so far in such a short time. So it's it's little things like that. And of course, how much do you actually need to take with you to host these events? How much, from a logistics perspective, do we actually need? And Formula One has always operated on cutting costs and restricting what it needs. I mean, it was an absolute circus. Yeah, exactly. I mean, do you remember before... Um, and this is showing our age a little bit as fans that back in the 90s and the early 2000s, Formula One teams would take as many as three or four cars to every single event. Whereas now you've literally got one car. And the amount of tyres. Yeah, oh wow. I mean, I mean, one exception to this was back in the 2005 season. Um, obviously where there was a time when Formula One teams would only have to, they'd have to manufacture tyres or their providers Michelin and Bridgestone in 2005 were tasked with uh, producing tyres that have to last the whole race. You weren't allowed to change tyres back then. Um, And this was like, people think about tyre management making the races boring now. They should have seen them in 2005. And obviously the one team that got called out by this was Ferrari because Bridgestone had not produce an effective tyre that could work the whole race, but also work with the car in mind. And bear in mind, the only other two teams that ran this tyre was Minardi and Jordan. Not exactly the two teams at the time that Bridgestone focused on. It was purely a Ferrari thing. And Michelin, with the exception of the US Grand Prix, had made this work. Hence why Ferrari were nowhere that season. And yet McLaren, Williams, Renault, BAR, Honda were so strong by comparison, because they all run the Michelin tyres. It's just stuff that Formula 1 needs to look at too, these measures where, on top of what they've already been doing, the cut costs and make things more environmentally and business-friendly, they need to then take that bar they've already set and then raise it even higher. It's a great opportunity for the future of the sport to really uh, take advantage of this situation and break a positive out of it, but so many unknowns and so many things and developments to come. And I believe that's probably, if it's all right with you, Courtney, unless there's anything you want to add to that. No, I think it sounds like a good opportunity to uh, round things up. Yeah, I mean, there was a few other things that we wanted to talk about, but I think we'll save that for an episode for next week. So with that in mind, guys, um, I hope you're all doing okay and have enjoyed this episode. Make sure to give us a like, share and subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's DNF1-F1 Podcast. Of course, if you're listening to us on your major podcasting platform, be it Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, make sure to 
download and follow us on there. And of course, make sure to follow the uh, Instagram and Twitter pages, which are both DNF1 underscore podcast, uh, particularly the Instagram page. Courtney does a lot of great work on there and it's just pure memes. It's the sort of stuff Thank content. You, Thank you. It is content that you definitely don't want to miss out for. It's beautiful content. So uh, oh, worthy, of, worthy of a follow. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, uh, purely because I have no involvement of it, so that's another reason to have more. No, <laughs> anywho, uh, self-deprivation aside, um, yeah, that's a great way to wrap this up. So, Courtney, thank you once again for joining us. Always a pleasure talking F1 with you, mate. And uh, take care, guys. We will see you for the next episode next week. And uh, take it easy. All the best. See you soon. Podcast Network.